Good morning. So as um, you heard this passage of scripture being read, this is kind of a a new direction for us in 2017, uh, because it's the first time we've done a teaching series outside of the book of Genesis uh, this year. So we're boldly venturing back into the New Testament. Um, We figured we'd talk about Jesus just for a few weeks, and then we'll kind of go back to, to something else. But um, this is this is a um, passage of scripture that comes from um, a really important time in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, uh, because Jesus has been teaching and preaching for uh, quite some time in the region where he grew up, in the region of northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee, and these different little fishing villages along the Sea of Galilee. But his movement is starting to gain momentum. He's having more and more people who are following him, who are finding that they're coming alive the closer they get to him and the more that they uh, follow and become like Jesus, that their lives are being healed, that they're being changed, that they're um, coming alive. And as that happens and as his movement begins to grow and gain steam, like what happens in most movements, uh, it also grows in the criticism of it. It grows in the critics. It grows among people who don't feel like that he's doing it the right way. And at the forefront of that list, is the religious establishment. Because all of these people are following him and seeing their lives changed in the name of Jesus, and none of it's happening within the four walls of the religious institution and how it works in its day, and so they need to tear him down. And one of the accusations that they make against him over and over and over again to prove that he is not worthy of being followed is that he hangs out with the wrong people. He hangs out what they say at the beginning of this chapter, Luke 15, with unclean people, sinners, the worst sinners, prostitutes and tax collectors, that no religious person of the day, no one who claimed to be God's teacher or God's prophet, much less the rumors about him being the Messiah, would ever be associated with. And what we have, the passage that you've just heard, that that is a series of parables that Jesus teaches in response to that direct accusation. The way he responds is by teaching parables that go through Luke 15 and into Luke 16 that teach us about the heart of God, that teach us about the amazing heart of the God whom we worship. And the parable that we're going to be looking at for these three weeks is commonly known as the prodigal son. This is an explanation to this accusation against Jesus. This is Jesus' response, okay? So let's begin by praying. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would be with us today. Lead and guide us. Help us to hear your good news proclaimed in Jesus' name. Amen. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. That's what the youngest son says to his father. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead because the only thing keeping me from being happy is you and your existence. Your existence keeps me from being happy for a number of reasons. It keeps me from being happy because as long as you're alive, I'm beholden to stay in this household. I have to stay living under your roof and your rules and your values and your rhythms and your things that you make me do. The responsibilities I have are not the ways that I want to live my life. 
And so I wish you were gone because if you were gone, then I would get my inheritance. I could take half of the family fortune and I could go pursue my dreams. To put this in modern language, I know my rights. I know what's right for me. I know what my truth will be. I know what will make me happy. I know no one, especially something as archaic as the Bible, cannot be really instructed on how we are to live today because I will make decisions about my own direction, about my own happiness. I will decide the parts that are true and I will decide the parts that just don't apply to me. I wish you were dead so that I can finally go and live my life. And in this amazing way, the father's response is to give him the fortune that he seeks. The father takes, who is a very wealthy person, is clear in this passage, he takes half of his possessions, half of what he has, half of the family wealth, half of what he's accumulated, or half of what has been passed down to him. But 50% of the family's wealth, he just takes and says, okay, here you go. Go live your life. Go follow all of your dreams. Go make yourself happy. There's no strings attached. There's no rules to this. You just go and do what you know is right for you. And he takes it and he goes to, it says, to a distant country where he lives and does things that we don't talk about in church. <laughs> he does things and ruins and loses all of his money. And when he is starving at the end, he says, my only chance of survival is getting home and maybe I can be a servant in my father's house. And in one of the most beautiful images that you will ever hear in all of your life, as he's coming home starving and penniless, his father sees him coming and runs to him. Runs to him. Now the clothes that the father as a wealthy man would have owned at the time meant that he would have worn robes. And those robes were very thick and very tight-fitting until so you actually couldn't run very well in the robes that he would have worn. And so what it means is to run to him that this old man had to hike up his robe so that his bare legs were showing. And he could then run in the most undignified of ways to see his son because he was home, because he was found, because he was alive. And he embraces his son. No rules, no stipulations, no apology, not even a guarantee that his son won't do it again. Just throws his arms around him and welcomes him home. It's a, it's a, it's a stunning story that Jesus tells. You may have heard it before. You may have heard it taught on before. In church, with folks who go to church, there are many of us who have heard this before, and you're probably thinking right now, yeah, 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 this is really cool, but this doesn't really describe me anymore. Maybe it did in college. I was in college. That's when I was doing this stuff. But I don't do it anymore, or at least I don't talk about it here. I've just learned to hide it really well, right? I've learned to, to kind of conceal it from everybody else. But, um, but I can tell you stories about when I was the prodigal. I can tell you stories about what it was like, but that's not me now, right? Um, people in church often sit there and go, man, you quit reading this too soon because I don't relate to the younger son. The one I relate to is the older son. 
the one that we're going to talk about next week. I'm more like him because I'm the rule follower and I've done everything right and, and, and everything else. And there's all kinds of stuff in there. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that next week. But I also want you to know that I reject that premise entirely. Oh, I'm not like the younger son. I'm the older son. That is not true. I need you to hear right now that is, that is a false claim because we are both, all of us. We might lean more towards one than the other, but we all have both sons within us. This younger son that is described here lives in you. Even if you're not like out last night on 6th Street doing things that we don't talk about in church. It lives in you because what lies at the core of that? What lies at the core of the prodigal is not about partying or anything else. What lies at the core of this younger son is the desire to say, I know what's right for me. I know what's best for my life and I will live it the way I want. I will choose what I do. I will choose what I don't. I will choose which rules I follow. I will choose the ones that don't. And nobody and nothing can tell me what the design for my life is supposed to be except me. I will be happy and I will decide how that works. This is, this, is, this is alive in all of us. If you're somebody who gets your first, who gets a paycheck, and when you get it, your first thought is, oh, cool, I'm closer to going on that vacation that I wanted to, or we finally get to go on that trip with friends, or I finally need to go eat at this restaurant because I have the means to, and your first thought is not, how do I give this away to benefit somebody else? That's the younger son living in you. If you're somebody who insists on this afternoon doing what you want to do because you just want to do it, you've had a long week, you've got a long week coming up, you've got a lot going on, and you would just like this afternoon to kind of get what you want for a little while. If you're somebody who your moods dictate how the rest of your family feels and operates, if you've ever heard that, that's the younger son living in you. And in all kinds of different ways where life revolves around you. Now, when we hear it that way, my hope is, is that many of us go, oh, yeah. Okay, I see that. If you're still sitting there going, I don't feel like that describes me, then you are severely out of touch. Okay? And here's what I recommend. I recommend you go talk to somebody who cares about you enough to tell you the truth and go, do I ever insist that life revolves around me and be ready to take copious notes? to hear how it's true. Because this lies in all of us. And there's an invitation this morning to come home. To return to the embrace of the Father. I want to talk about this in two ways today. The first way is I want to talk about why would we want to come home? I like living life the way I want it. I like deciding what's true for me. I like knowing what makes me happy. Why would I not want to live that way? I want to talk about that first. Why would we want to come home? And secondly, how do you do that? Okay? Why do we do it and how do you do it? The why is really simple, but we have to name it. The reason that we need to come home is that there's all this promise of how great life's going to be if I just finally can get things the way I want them to be that we have to see in this parable, and it tells us a story that's true in our life of going, you can get everything you want and you still won't be happy. There's a reason that people win the lottery and then go bankrupt afterwards because they have the means to make everything the way they want it and it's never good enough and so they just keep plowing into that until everything's gone. 
Because if you got everything tailor-made for you exactly the way that you want it to make you happy, it's not gonna be nearly as good as what you think. You're not the best barometer of what truly will make you happy. Your instincts are not the best barometer of how things should be or how you guys should be operating. And that's just truth. Rather than give you some war story that I could give you of my own journey in this, I actually was powerfully influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen on this. Henry Nouwen wrote an amazing book called The Return of the Prodigal, and it was based on this passage of scripture, and it was based on when Henry Nouwen was on a trip in Europe and went to a museum and had a few hours extra, and he saw this painting by the famous Dutch artist Rembrandt. If you know anything about Rembrandt, he was born in the early 1600s, and his entire life he never left the Netherlands. He lived till he was just over 60, and Rembrandt was and is still today one of the most celebrated artists of all time, worldwide. He was a genius. He was a child genius in art, and everybody knew it from a very young age. Unfortunately, Rembrandt knew it too. If you know anything about his life, Rembrandt was... He was the prodigal in like the classic sense of the prodigal, right? You can tell that from his art. We have another picture that we're gonna bring up just for a second. This is one of Rembrandt's earlier paintings. It was very celebrated known. He painted this when he was 29 years old. The things about Rembrandt is that he didn't hide anything about himself. And we also know he loved his life because he painted about himself more than just about any artist you know. He painted all kinds of self-portraits. This is one of them. Rembrandt is here in a tavern, tavern, uh, potentially a tavern, a certain kind of tavern, and he's there on the right, uh, the one looking at the camera, or the camera, at, uh, looking out at... <laughs> I'm a modern person. <laughs> I do paintings, I look at pictures of paintings. That went on the internet. Okay, so, um, Rembrandt is the person on the right, that's him. He had long hair, he wore expensive clothes, he wanted everyone to know it, he was very flamboyant, he spent a lot of money on stuff. This is a picture of him and a buddy of his in some kind of tavern, and he's looking out at us as the ones viewing it. He wants us to see his face. He's like, I want you to know this is me. This is me celebrating life. I got a drink in one hand, I got my hand on the back of this woman in the other. I want everybody not to be confused about who, this is me, look how great my life is. Look how happy he is. He is happy. He is having fun, right? This was his life. This is the stuff he painted that people bought and that celebrated. It made him tons of money and tons of fame. Unfortunately, it's not as great as you think. Rembrandt experienced what the prodigal experienced. He experiences what everything like we experience when we wander and determine, I can make life the way I want it to be. He had those around him who got sick of his ego and left him. He had family and friends who was very close to him die. He had people that got tired of him or got tired of his art and they quit buying it at the prices they had before. Now he kept spending lots of money because he deserved a happy lifestyle, but it meant that he lost everything. In his 50s, he had debt collectors come. They took everything he owned. They took his art, all of his artwork. They took his house. They took his work, his studio. He had no more students who came to learn from him anymore, and that was how he lived out the final days of his life, because having fun, when we're honest, it's not nearly as good as the way we like to project it on Facebook. It's not nearly as good as the stories we tell about what it's like, and we know it, 
and we self-destruct in it. Rembrandt, we know two things of at the end of his life. We know, number one, that he died penniless, and he died virtually alone. But the second thing we know about Rembrandt is captured in the image of one of his final paintings that was up before, and we're going to keep up for the rest of the time, The Return of the Prodigal. We know that in his last years, Rembrandt found a peace about himself and his life and in his relationship with God that he had not known in all of his fun days. That his friends, the few that were left, wrote about it. He described it, and his artwork reflects it. This painting, this well-known painting of the return of the prodigal is one of the final paintings Rembrandt did. He finished it less than a year before he died, sick and old and alone. And most scholars believe that this painting is the last self-portrait that Rembrandt painted. He's not there staring at a, out at the, the audience with a drink in one hand and long hair. He's kneeling. Impoverished with nothing. But kneeling in the embrace of the Father. Why? Why pay attention to God's design for how our lives and our relationships are supposed to work? Because you, as smart and clever as you are, are not the best expert on how your life's supposed to be lived. And you will learn that through experience, if nothing else. There's nothing creative or new about saying, I'm going to decide what my life and my beliefs, and I don't need any system to tell it to me. There's nothing creative or original in that. The good news is the embrace of the Father is always waiting with open arms for when we want to come back and find peace. So that's why. But second off, and I want to finish with this, is how. So if we hear that, and if that resonates in parts of our lives, like, okay, I've got these parts of the prodigal in me. Maybe they're big, rebellious ways like Rembrandt. Maybe they're smaller ways where I insist on life being lived like me. How do you return to the embrace of the Father? How does one do that? Well, there's no formula for just saying yes to God. But what I want to invite you to do this week is I want to invite you to consider those places in your life that you are not really following God's design for how you're supposed to live. To just consider, and that may not be that you're outwardly rebelling, it's just some part of your life that you're like, I've just never really thought about what God wants here. Think about it. God, we, we in the church and as Christians, we get caught up in like debates where we're going, well, does God want us to do this or this? Do we vote this way or this way? And those are important conversations, but that's on like 2% of issues. Like 98% of our life, it's really clear what God wants us to do. And most of the time we're just like, I just don't do it because I just don't really know, or I don't really think about it, or that's not what we talk about in church on Sunday. I want to invite you today, to, to, to not out of rules, but to, to come back to the Father and say, what would it mean for, to consider what is God's design for my life when it comes to this or it comes to this? It might be counterintuitive. Here's an example, because these are, these are very practical things that we can do. As many of you know, this is just an example to hopefully spur some thoughts this week. As many of you know, uh, my wife, Beth, and I uh, have been married for 18 years, over 18 years. We're still in half years, so we're 18 and a half years into our marriage. Um, I don't know in marriage when you stop counting half years. My kids did it at like five and a half. I'm still doing it. We're 18 and a half in our marriage. Um, and we came from very different backgrounds. I came from uh, a kind of 
well-off background here in the States, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, money was never an, uh, a, an issue for my family. Uh, I went to private school. I went to a private college. I graduated with no student debt because my family could just kind of do that and make that happen. And it just was the life I had lived. It's the only life I knew, right? Beth, who I met in Japan, and that kind of tells you something because we met where there was like on no one's home turf, right? And there's good parts to that, but there's hard parts to it because there's elements of you you don't really know in a, in a neutral place like that. We met because we were both te teaching English in Japan, and Beth comes from like literally the opposite end of the spectrum, okay? She comes from a very, very impoverished area of Great Britain. It's the most impoverished area of Great Britain and has been for decades. Her dad was a coal miner, her granddad was a coal miner, and life was hard and money was tight. If I had been doing premarital counseling with Thomas and Beth 18 and a half years ago, I would have been saying, guys, this could be a real issue for you. Money and finance, you guys have way different experiences with this, and this could become, as it is for many couples, and I guarantee you it is for many people sitting here right now, money is a wedge that is difficult to talk about and can be divisive. And I would have looked at Thomas and Beth and said, y'all need to be aware of this. And I would have been right. We first experienced our differences on that when we were engaged and in Japan and we went on a trip to the closest big city to where we lived, which was Osaka. Osaka was a place that in rural Japan where we lived, we could get on a train in the morning, we could go to Osaka, eat at a Western restaurant um, uh, and, and do some shopping and get back and get back to our apartments uh, at night. Okay, so that's where we'd often go to Osaka. And we went shopping for clothes. And as you can tell, I'm not really into shopping for clothes. I don't care about clothes very much. I, don't, I just don't. I never have. But we were there, and I still remember I went into J. Crew Because I'm a J. Crew guy, right? <laughs> that went on the internet as well. We are rolling today. I didn't say that at any of their services, and this is the one that will be broadcast. So I went into J. Crew. And I bought some clothes. I bought, I bought a shirt, I bought some, some trousers, and I bought some shoes. And I loved it, right? And I don't do this much. And I came walking out, and I had clothes, and Beth, had, and we had separated, and she met me outside, and she goes, oh, you bought some clothes. I said, yeah. I'm like, do you want to see them? She goes, yeah, how much do they cost? I was like, I don't know. She goes, what do you mean you don't know? I'm like, I don't know. But they're really cool. Do you want to see them? And she goes, no, no, seriously, how much do they cost? I'm like, I don't, I don't remember. There was money in my wallet, which I earned, Thank you. And, uh, and there was enough in there to cover it. I don't really remember. I wasn't paying attention. She goes, you didn't look at the price tag? I'm like, I didn't look at the price. Did you go in the sales section? Why would, I don't know. I, just, I saw what I liked, I bought it. And she's leaving me, she goes, well, was, how do you know the amount for how it fits into your budget? I'm like, what? And she goes, you know, like, your budget, like the line item for shopping or clothes, like how do you know if you don't know the amount if it's gonna be in the range of your budget? I'm like. Why are you doing this? <laughs> Why are you bringing a word like budget into the conversation? I earned money from my job that I just bought clothes for me to wear and you're getting all weird about this. And she goes, do you have a budget? I'm like, no, I don't have a budget. She goes, I could, she was sitting on the street, she's like, when we are married, you will have a budget. A budget for everything. We will know where every penny comes in from and we will know where every penny goes. Do you understand? I'm like, stop 
acting like this. I just bought some shoes. Lay off of me for a little while. It was a good day. It was a great rest of the, the train ride back was awesome. Money stayed hard for us in the beginning of our relationship and our marriage. It stayed a difficult subject for us to find common ground on because I, my instinct was to spend and best instinct is to save. And so in the midst of the conflict we were struggling with, we finally asked a question. It was like, I wonder if the Bible has something to say about this. I wonder if the Bible has something to say about how we should think about money. Maybe the Bible could just help us figure out and prove to Beth that she's wrong and I'm right and all of this, or vice versa. And you know what we found? We found a lot there. We found a lot that was there that talked to us about how we were to think about money. A lot of very practical stuff. That The first thing when we came in that we were fighting about the wrong stuff. It's not about spending or about saving that the first thing you're supposed to talk about is giving. And that's very, very clear. And here's the deal. I know it's in church, and I know we're talking about money. I'm not about to ask you for anything. There's no pledge cards that are about to go out. There's no capital campaign that we're about to announce. I'm just telling you this because this is true, that the first thing you're to think about is giving. And not just like maybe what you feel like giving. The first thing, the minimum you're supposed to give is at least 10%. And that you're supposed to live underneath the rest. That you're supposed to live within budget after your tithe. And that means you might have to make some hard choices about where you're going to go on vacation or where you're going to go eat. But that that's the framework under which we're supposed to live. I can tell you that at 18 and a half years of marriage, money and budgeting is now one of the healthiest parts of my marriage. Not because I got my way and not because Beth got her way, but because he asked the question, what is the father's design for this? How are we, that's coming home. That's a very practical way that you come home into the embrace of the father. Because what we found is it's not just about following rules and getting the rules right, that actually money is a catalyst for intimacy and faith in our lives. Because we sit there together and we talk about how we're gonna tithe and where we're gonna be generous and how we're gonna give away and we feel the pressure of that and we have to pray together about God, I, this is more than I'd like to and so like, you know, help me with my doubt in this and help me with where this is gonna go and we have to do that together and then we have to take the rest and say where are we gonna go on vacation and how do we unify around that and how do we spend money in that way and what does that mean for the rest of our life and it becomes this thing that setting a budget creates more intimacy and more connection for the two of us than almost anything else. And that may sound pathetic to you, but it is also what I found when you get beyond the emotions of being in love. It's those kind of practices that breed intimacy or breed division. She had her way, I had my way. What was God's way? We come home because it's the only way we truly live. How? By asking the question, what is the Father's design for every part of my life? And even when it's counterintuitive, trusting in faith that as we are obedient, we will come to life. What would that mean for you?
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would help us to live and come alive. We ask for your leading and your guiding. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Help us to hear and accept the invitation to come home. Amen.